As the video pointed out, uh, this gospel's purpose is meant to show us who Jesus is. Over and over and over again in the gospel of John, Jesus reveals himself in these many different ways. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the water that will, if you drink of me, you will never thirst again. So over and over and over, Jesus uh, is going to reveal to us more and more of who he is. But in this introduction, uh, which we have already begun for the last couple of weeks, John is going to just give us this snapshot about who Jesus is. You see our, our sermon series, and you're going to see this title probably for the majority of the rest of this year, I, The Great I Am. Uh, this is what we are going to be uh, diving into over the course of 2023. So this morning we continue uh, with our study in this gospel. And to begin with, I want us to spend a little bit of time arguing and defending the full deity of Christ as well as his full humanity. The verse that we will touch on most is what I view and what I see as I read it. I think this is one of the most important verses to our Christian faith. It's essential that we understand and fully comprehend what John is telling us here in these verses. The deity and humanity of Christ are non-negotiable truths that we must cling to. I want us to see why this doctrine is so vitally important to our faith. Why does it matter if Jesus is fully God? Why does it matter that he is also fully human? What differences do these truths make about Christ? And also, what do others say about him? First off, we're going to look at that last question. From the handbook of today's religions, uh, written by Josh McDowell and Don Stewart, uh, we find what some other religions claim to be true about Jesus. First of all, Mormons would say, according to Joseph Smith's Pearl of Great Price, that they believe in God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost, which sounds pretty good. However, with a closer look at their beliefs, you will also find that they believe there are many gods and teach that God Himself was once a man and that all men can attain godhood. In Mormonism, Jesus is not the unique son of God. He was just the firstborn of God's spirit children. Jesus was created by a sexual union between God the Father and Mary. Secondly, Muslims would say that there is no trinity and that God is divorced from his creation. His transcendence is so great that he cannot be associated with his creation. They also do not believe Jesus is the Son of God, or that he rose from the dead. In fact, many of them believe that he never died on the cross, but instead, Judas was crucified in his place. Others of them would say that he went to the cross, but did not, in fact, die. Muslims would claim that Jesus was a great prophet, yes. However, he was not as great as Muhammad. Even the idea that Allah had a son is repugnant to them. So this is what a Muslim would say to be true about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus is not God in human flesh, but rather a created being. He was a God, 
but not the almighty God who is Jehovah. Christian scientists would say that Jesus Christ is actually two separate beings. Jesus is the human man, and Christ is the divine idea. They do not coexist in the person of Jesus Christ, but in fact are two separate beings. So we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible truly teach about who Jesus is? Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's great confusion even in his own day. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what John is going to help his readers to understand. This is what he wants us to understand today. Who is Jesus and how can you know and believe in him? He will later write in chapter five and he referenced this in the video. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you hope that you have eternal life, but that you will know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. As we begin today, I want us to recap from from verse 1 in John chapter 1. I want us to take a big picture, a look at the entire introduction uh, that John gives us. Uh, We cannot simply preach through an entire letter in one sitting. We obviously have to split it up into pieces, but this was written as a letter. So, as he writes this introduction, verses 1 through uh, 18, I want us to look at it in its entirety before honing in on verses 14 and 15 this morning. So, look, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God... And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. If you remember back a couple of weeks, we know who it is that that John is writing about when he says, The word. This is Jesus. Not only was he with God, but he was God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made, and in him was life. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world, it says, did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this was our passage from last week, and now verse fourteen. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We will leave those final three verses for next week. And today we are just going to be looking at verse 14 and briefly verse 15. I've titled the message today what I hope we will take directly from the passage that Jesus is fully God, fully man, full of grace and truth. We will look at four truths this morning from that passage, from verses 14 and 15. And I, I really wanted to not use alliteration just so that dad would just, his skin would, it would make his skin crawl. Um, and then as I looked at the passage, I was like, no, it just works out too well. So dad can sleep at night this morning. We will use four points, uh, and the first one of which pulled from the first part of 14 is the nature of Christ. And it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word. This takes us back to the beginning of chapter 1 where John began. In the beginning was the word. It's an obvious reference to Genesis 1.1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we go back a couple of weeks when we started this study and we read through those verses and Dad talked about that, uh, that chapter and that verse, we know who it is that John is talking about. The Word is Jesus. And John tells us again that the Word was not just there in the beginning. He was God. It says that the word was with God and he was God. All things were made for him and through him. If there's ever any question about the fact that God in Jesus, that Jesus is fully God, this opening introduction in the gospel of John is enough to clear things up. He was uncreated. He was pre-existent. He is eternal, all-powerful, King of kings, the Lord of lords, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, the Word, was in fact fully God. He is obviously not the only one to make this point. Paul says in Titus 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Later in 1 John, John will write in 520, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He says, this is the true God and eternal life. John records these words in chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my what? My God. Colossians 2, verse 9 Paul writes these words, my favorite, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hear Paul's words very clearly here. All of the fullness 
of deity dwells in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ is fully God. And this is what John is speaking of in the first part of verse 14. This is not a secondary issue that we can argue about and we can kind of fall to one side and say, yeah, maybe. And some of you say, no, he is. It is not something that we should negotiate. Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. We cannot disagree on this fact. He is not a created being. He was there before the beginning of time. He is eternal. So what does he say that the word did? The word became flesh. As with many verses that are familiar, it's easy to read through a passage like this and and to get a cursory understanding of that phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's very easy to just gloss on past that without fully comprehending what John is saying here. We need to understand the weight of what John is saying. That's why I keep emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God. The one who is before all things and created all things, holds all things together. He came down to us and put on flesh like us. He humbled himself for us and became like one of us. Yet he stood apart from us in one distinct and vitally important way. He was without sin. Don't for a second doubt the humanity of Jesus. Though we can't comprehend it with our finite minds, Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. No separate beings. His deity and his humanity coexisted. Jesus was fully God and at the same time fully man. Docetism is the belief that Jesus was God but not human. On the flip side, what is called Ebionism is the belief that he is human, but not God. And both are equally unbiblical and false teachings. Just as his deity is of utmost importance, his humanity is non-negotiable. Why? No angelic being or animal could pay for the sins of a human being. Another human is the only sufficient sacrifice that could pay for our sins. If you remember, Hebrews 10.4 says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what does that say about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? Was it all done in vain? No. God had put that in place on a temporary basis as they awaited the perfect Lamb of God who had once and for all take away our sins. It could only be accomplished by one who is fully human, yet perfect. One who is like us in every way, yet without sin. One who can sympathize with us, who is tempted like us, who wept, who felt the range of human emotion, who hungered and thirsted, who walked and talked like us, but who was perfect, blameless, spotless, without fault or blemish. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Thus, the nature of Christ as seen in the first part of verse 14 reveals that Jesus is fully God and at the same time fully man. The Word became flesh. And John says that he dwelt among us. This word dwelt literally means to tabernacle. He tabernacled 
with us, which points us back to the Old Testament when the Israelites were on their wilderness journey and they carried the tent with them and wherever they would set it up in the center of that tent, the most holy place, it said that the presence of the Lord dwelt among them. Wherever they went, the Lord their God was with them. And now John writes that he has now come to us in human flesh and he has dwelt among the people that he created and that he sustains. Take just a moment of of pause to think and reflect on those relationships that you have in your life that are of of the closest nature. For me, obviously, my my closest human relationships are my wife and our four kids. Uh, Why? Because we live amongst each other. We do nearly everything together. When we wake up during the week, we get ready for school and work together. Uh, We share meals together every single day. Uh, We go to games and activities together. We play at the house together, laugh and fight and read and watch movies. We share literally every aspect of life together. That's what makes those relationships so close. So if you were to take those relationships, and on the flip side, if I lived in some other country and I never talked to them and we had zero to little communication with each other, and every once in a while we got a chance to maybe talk for five minutes on the phone, we would not really have anything to relate to because we don't spend time together. We would not be able to to come up with things that uh, we could talk about. There would probably be awkward silences because we don't live amongst each other. Jesus is not some far-off, distant being who is divorced from his creation. He is with us. John says he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He relates to us and lived like us so that he would eventually die for us and ultimately save us. He was, in fact, fully God, but he was also fully human. And these two truths about Jesus cannot be overstated and they cannot be overlooked. They're foundational to what we believe. Thus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Look now at the latter half of verse 14 as we see our second point, the glory of Christ. The nature of Christ, now the glory of Christ. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. The glory of God is something that we will always and forever have discussions about. We will always learn and grow and find out more truths about what God's glory is. It's difficult for us to comprehend and to understand, and we're always going to have more and more questions about the glory of God. But we must try. One aspect of God's glory that we see in Scripture is His Shekinah glory. And this glory manifests itself in a blazing bright light that cannot be looked upon. Anytime God's glory was revealed, it always had to be veiled. Why? Exodus 33:20 says, God says to Moses, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." In the Israelites' wilderness journey, the Lord's presence led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments, was covered by a thick cloud. If you remember back in 1 Kings chapter 8, at the completion of the temple, it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord 
so that the priest could not even stand to minister because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. At every instance where the Lord revealed himself to his people, his glory always had to be veiled. So how is it that John now writes that we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father? How is the glory of God revealed in Jesus? I think, first of all, it's pretty clear and it's pretty obvious uh, that we see God's glory through many of the miracles that he performed. Time and time again, the healings that he performed, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus raising from death to life. Others would say we see the glory of God and Jesus when we read of the transfiguration. Yes, again, a, a beautiful picture of God's glory. But is this all that John is speaking of uh, when he speaks of the glory of Christ? John Piper says this, the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. Or he says in, an, in another way, simply put, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold or many perfections. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections. The greatest and most beautiful display of his many perfections is seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why John can say that we have seen the Father's glory, because We have seen Jesus. With that being said, Jesus did not only display glory through his powerful and miraculous works. We see the glory of Jesus on display through his humility, his obedience, his service, his love, his compassion for others. Richard Phillips, who wrote the Reformed Expository Commentary, he says this, Jesus showed us a higher glory. Though he had the power that created galaxies, he subjected himself to human scorn and abuse. He allowed his heart to break as he wept over Jerusalem. He allowed his body to be broken, his hands and feet nailed to a cross by creatures that he had made. And he gave up his life so that we might live. This is why Matthew 5.16 says this. In the same way, sorry, a little fuzzy flying in front of my face. Um, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When others see your humility and your obedience and your service and your love and your compassion for the world around you, they get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is on display all around us, and we exist to point others to him. If you've ever walked through our Membership 101 class, you you remember our purpose statement as Temple Baptist Church. It says that Temple Baptist Church exists for the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our purpose. This is why we exist, to point others to the glory of God. When we imitate the life of Jesus, this is what takes place. When we embody humility instead of pride, when we resist temptation and choose obedience, when we serve the least of these, 
when we love those who the world says are unlovable, when we allow interruptions to our day and show compassion to someone who has a need but wasn't on our to-do list. This is one thing that Jesus often did in his ministry. He always, hear me, he always allowed for interruptions to his schedule. So what interruptions do we pass by day after day after day that God is saying, listen, slow down, show compassion, imitate Jesus, and display my glory? So John says we have seen it. We have seen his glory in Jesus Christ. And what we find when we experience him is what? Look at the last two words of verse 14. What we find when we experience him is that he is full of grace and truth. We see the nature of Christ, the glory of Christ. Thirdly, we see the character of Christ. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, briefly, let us real quick just define these two terms before we go any further. So, grace, we could say that God's grace is unmerited favor. It's getting what we don't deserve. So, what do we deserve? Romans is very clear. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we deserve eternal punishment and separation from God. However, God has given us grace through his son, Jesus. Again, but what about the Old Testament? Jesus had not yet come. What about the Israelites? God consistently and constantly showed grace to his people in the Old Testament as well but it was through the law and the sacrificial system. This was a form of God's grace to his people. However, it was temporary. Sacrifices given time and time again, over and over, year after year. This was one form of God's grace for his people. And at the same time, it would point forward to when Christ would come as the ultimate and perfect sacrifice once and for all. Another form of God's grace which is given to every human being on earth who has ever lived is something that we know as common grace. Whether someone is a follower of Jesus or not, we all experience God's common grace. The air that we are breathing this morning, the fact that we are alive today, our free will, the water and food that we eat and drink, on and on the list goes. God has given us all his common grace. However, grace is fully realized and experienced and displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the one who is not just full of grace, but who embodies grace. He is grace. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate act of God's grace to us, taking on the punishment of all mankind and dying a death that we should have died after living a life that we could never live. We see grace most clearly when we look to the, gro- to the cross. So Jesus is full of grace, but not just grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth. If you were to look in the Oxford Dictionary, uh, the, the word truth is defined as a fact or belief that is accepted as true. 
the quality or state of being true. Now, as you know, we could take this definition and we could go in many different ways. Our culture today tells us that what is true for you is not necessarily true for me. So what is truth? Is there one truth that is true for us all? Is there a singular truth that we can cling to? What does the Bible teach? Is God's word completely true? Is there another way of salvation? Or is there one singular standard that applies to us all? You remember John records later in this book, chapter 14, verse 6, the words of Jesus where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what is truth? All we must do is look to Jesus to find the answer because he and he alone is truth. John writes then, That Jesus, the incarnate word, fully God, fully man, is full of grace and truth. Now, one thing that if if you were to come to our our house, uh, you'd find at all times throughout the year, no matter what time of year, uh, is we have Walmart sacks full of what we call treats. Um, Our kids, all four of them, um, have a ravenous desire for sweet things. And so we started it back whenever our kids were, were little. Uh, we said, you know, if you finish your meal, you can have a treat at the end of that meal. So for the most part, we always have treats on hand. Uh, so right now, we currently have, what, Christmas treats, candy from Christmas. We are getting ready to get some Valentine's treats that will fill up a couple of more bags. Uh, Then what's next? Easter treats. Uh, Summertime parade after parade after parade. Thank you, Sullivan, uh, for giving us all the sweet treats on the street. Uh, Then we are going to get into the fall, and we are going to get Halloween candy. And then what? Christmas candy again. So it is a never-ending cycle of treats that we have at our house, which is great. Our kids love that, uh, but they, they feel that they, it's owed to them to have a treat if they finish their food. So I would say that if you asked any of the four of them, what is the ultimate treat that you could have at the end of a meal? What is the pinnacle of all treats? I just saw Brianna say it's ice cream. It's their favorite. Ice cream is my kid's absolute favorite treat. Now, if I were to present two bowls, if I were to fill one bowl completely to the top, all the way full of ice cream, and then I had a a second bowl, and it had maybe one scoop-ish in the bottom, and I were to say, here, which one would you like? There's no question, no matter how much food they just stuffed in their face, there's no question they're always going to pick the bowl that is completely full all the way to the very top. Not only would they say that they want that one, but they would say what? They need it. Yeah, they need it. A partial measure of God's grace and truth is not enough. John says in verse 14 that Jesus is full 
of grace, that he is full of truth to the top, no room for any more. And as we're going to see in next week, out of that fullness, he gives us what? He gives us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's a never-ending well. It's not something that can be used up. Jesus just doesn't give us a partial measure of one or the other. He isn't somewhat full of grace or has just a little bit of truth. So why does this matter? What are the consequences then of Jesus being full of grace and mostly true or of Jesus being fully truth but no grace? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Essentially, if Jesus is full of grace, then can't we just do whatever we want because Jesus is full of it? Can't we just continue in our sinful ways because we won't, won't that display God's grace more fully? What was Paul's words? He says, by no means. If our hearts say yes, then that is nothing more than cheap grace. It's what we call easy believism. That is simply saying, I will do what I want because I know Christ has forgiven me and will give me grace. So flip it around. What if God has no grace? But what if Jesus is full of truth? Then all are condemned. No one is saved. If God gives us what we truly deserve according to his word and we break any one single command, then we are completely condemned and would be forever and eternally separated from him. Jesus then completely and fully embodies fullness of God's grace and truth. Not a little of one and some of the other. He is full of grace and he is full of truth. So verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John then recaps for us in verse 15, which is our final point, which we will not spend much time on, I promise. Verse 15 is our final point, the forerunner of Christ. He has already referenced this in verses 6 through 8. He will reference it again later in verses 19 through 34, the forerunner of Christ. Verse 15, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's already made this point. He's going to continue on in this point uh, later. His life was dedicated, John the Baptist's life was dedicated to point others to the true Savior in light of the world. John, verse, or John chapter 1, verse 15 also emphasizes the truth that we pointed out in 14, that Jesus existed from the beginning. So how could John the Baptist say that he was before him when Jesus was born six months after him? As we've already said, it's only by the fact that he was fully God and he was there in the beginning. John was not the one the world had been waiting for. His entire ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Apostle records the words of John the Baptist later in this chapter in verse 29. And he says, when he saw Jesus coming toward him, what were his words? Do you remember? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. John was simply the forerunner of Christ. John recognized that this Jesus was fully God and fully man, the one whose sandal strap he said he is unworthy to even untie. He was the one who baptized not only of water, but it says of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we will see the remaining verses of this prologue, the remaining three verses in this introduction, how from the fullness of God's grace, as I said before, he gives us grace upon grace. He likewise, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. And lastly, we're going to see how if we have seen and experienced Jesus, we have a clear picture of the Father. As I said at the outset, John wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to understand his nature. He wants us to know that he is fully God, the divine creator and sustainer of all things. He wants us to know him personally because he is God in the flesh. Not some far off distant being who is divorced from his creation, but one who came down and humbled himself and lived like us and died for us. He wants us to see his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father. He wants us to experience his grace and his truth. Not a small measure of grace and truth that our temporal minds can comprehend, a grace and truth that is full to the top, inexhaustible, and never-ending well. He wants us to know him personally, and he wants us to have a relationship with him. Jesus is, in fact, fully God. He's fully man, and he is full of grace.